This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. First performed in the Malagro Theater of Portland, Oregon in 2014, Olga Sanchez Saltvates O Romeo imagines William Shakespeare late in his life writing a play set in Mexico about a conquistador and his beloved, a woman from Tenochtitlan. Shakespeare tells Rifke, his Spanish housekeeper, that his conquistador protagonist will integrate his beloved's life and faith with his own. Rifke, who has received letters from her missionary brother living in the Americas, responds, and I'm using uh, a translation from the Spanish here, quote, the conquistadors do not integrate, they impose. Have you not heard what my brother writes, end quote. Today, I'm excited to discuss Salvate's play and the other plays included in the first volume of a new anthology titled The Bard in the Borderlands, an Anthology of Shakespeare Appropriations in La Frontera, with its editors, Catherine Gillen and Catherine Romero Santos, who they worked with this project um, with Adriana Santos, who will not be joining us today. Catherine Gillen is professor of English at Texas A&M San Antonio and is the author of the previous monograph, Chaste Value, Economic Crisis, Female Chastity, and the Production of Social Difference on Shakespeare's Stage from Edinburgh University Press in 2017. Catherine Santos is professor of English and co-director of the Humanities Collective at Trinity University and is author of the forthcoming 2024 monograph, Shakespeare in Tongues from Rutledge. Adriana Santos is professor of English at Texas A&M San Antonio and is the author of Cicatrix Poetics, Trauma and Healing in the Literary Borderlands, Beyond Survival from Palgrave in 2023. Kate, Katie, and Adriana are co-founders of the Borderlands Shakespeare Collectiva, which is a multi-institutional project designed to expand Shakespeare pedagogy and performance. 
I also want to say that throughout this podcast, I will use the full names of the two interviewees just in case listeners want to cite what you say or follow up an email with a question that the interviewers raise or that sort of thing. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Katie and Kate. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to quote an, an article published uh, on the sundial that Kate co-wrote with Lisa Jennings titled Decolonizing Shakespeare Toward an Anti-Racist Culturally Sustaining Praxis. Quote, colonial education presumes that it can be transported without modification to any context. By contrast, decolonial pedagogy must attend to specific geographies, cultures, epistemologies, and colonial racial histories, end quote. Can you talk with us about how you see the bard in the borderland serving as a resource for decolonial pedagogy? Sure. Thank you so much for quoting from that sundial piece. It was a joy to write that with Professor Jennings. Um, I think that these plays engage in decolonial work in a number of ways. One, to kind of reference that quote directly that you mentioned, they're really, excuse me, doing place-based work in the sense that they're engaging with specific geographies, language practices, and ways of knowing and being. And so, for example, um, a play by Ceres Jaime Magana, which is in volume one, called The Tragic Corrido of Romeo and Lupe, really situates the Romeo and Juliet story in the Rio Grande Valley. And so, for example, when Shakespeare is talking about, um, you know, specific birds or insects or plants, um, Magana really replaces those with the, um, you know, flora and fauna of, of the valley. And I think the bilingual nature of that play really reflects the Spanishes and Englishes and Spanglishes that people in the valley speak as well. So I think part of the decolonial work beyond being place-based is to really validate ways of speaking and knowing and thinking that um, are not always um, honored as legitimate within kind of dominant hegemonic white culture. So I think that's a really important part of that decolonial work. Um, we also really draw on the work of theorist Emma Perez, who talks about the decolonial imaginary. And she thinks about the decolonial imaginary as kind of creative work that opens up space to imagine alternatives to colonial narratives and histories. And as we see it, that's part of the work of Borderland Shakespeare is to really think about other ways of understanding these histories and to open up kind of spaces of freedom, spaces in which to imagine decolonial futures um, and presence as well. What I learned from your introduction to this volume is that these Borderlands plays in some ways repoliticize themes like romance, love, and family rivalries in Shakespeare's texts. They reject the presumption behind that famous line in Shakespeare's prologue to Romeo and Juliet, given the ongoing colonial and social realities that structure the experience of these characters. Why can't the ill-fated lovers in uh, Eddie um, Villarreal's The Language of Flowers or James Lujan's Kino and Teresa, quote, with their death, bury their parents' strife, end quote. So I've learned so much from teaching these plays and talking to my students about them. And one of the things that I've discussed with them is that they dig deeper into the so-called ancient grudge that we hear about in the prologue 
And they situate Romeo and Juliet within feuds that are far from senseless. In particular, both Villarreal and Lujan are interested in colonial histories and their ongoing realities and aftershocks in the borderlands. So in many ways, the two hours traffic of the stage or the love between the two people at the center of the play are hardly enough to resolve such complex conflicts. And I think relatedly and related to your question about the line of the parent line about the parents is that these two playwrights spend much more time developing the parents than Shakespeare does. So we see in the language of flowers that Juliet's Mexican-American father feels enormous pressure to assimilate, but is frustrated by the limitations and racism that he experiences, even though he speaks English and dresses a certain way and associates with the so-called right people. And in Kino and Teresa, we see the figure of Anieri, who's Kino's mother, serving as an ardent voice of indigenous resistance, who vows to keep fighting at the end of the play. But I think that this is a really important reminder that the sense of reconciliation we get at the end of Romeo and Juliet is quite hollow and certainly can't account for the centuries of colonization that continue to shape a place like New Mexico or Los Angeles in the case of The Language of Flowers. I think that's that's a wonderful point. Um, and this goes back to something else, I think, that, that you say in your introduction, which is um, that, that you're not asking what Shakespeare can do for these playwrights, but what these playwrights can do for Shakespeare, you know, deepening what is, as you say, hollow in in the original text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these plays are doing really wonderful work on their own terms and in their own rights. So that's something we do really want to stress about this project is just the value of these plays, that they're not simply adaptations or appropriations of Shakespeare, but plays that are really important within often Mexican-American and indigenous theatrical traditions. That's wonderful. Um, Let's turn to Villarreal's The Language of Flowers, which premiered at California State University, Los Angeles in 1991. A free adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, Villarreal's adaptation makes several important changes. Um, As we've already um, begun to talk about, the conflict between the Montagues and Capulets is grounded in the internal politics of the Mexican-American community. The characters of Benvolio and Mercutio are combined, and the ending is infused with indigenous spiritual traditions. Can you talk to us about the significance of these changes? Sure. Um, So as you noted, when the play first premiered in in 1991, um, Villarreal was interviewed Um, And she noted at that time that when she was composing the play, she really wanted to avoid the trope of West Side Story, which, as you know, not only focused on gang violence, but also turned the conflict of Romeo and Juliet into a conflict between cultures. By situating the play within a Mexican-American community within Los Angeles, she was able to add nuance to stereotypes about Mexican-American people and Latinxes more generally and to really dramatize the dilemmas that they face when navigating issues of class, race, and gender, among other things. And as I mentioned earlier, the ongoing effects of colonialism. 
So her choice to set her the play, moreover, within the context of El Dia de los Muertos, reorients the play's exploration of life and death toward an indigenous framework, allowing someone like Benny and the other calaveras who move throughout the spiritual dimension of the play to serve as a kind of guide for the lovers as they connect with their indigenous heritage and move from this life into a Mexica life. Um, so the ending of Romeo and Juliet, as we mentioned before, um, is not resolved, but the lovers get to exist together um, in an afterlife that is less about the tragedy of their lives being lost and more about connecting back to that indigenous heritage that they're searching for together. Could we read a passage from the first act of The Language of Flowers, which is the character Binny's, and, and this is a, um, a, the combination of Benvolio and Mercutio, um, Binny's representation of settler colonialism. Um, Katie, would you feel uh, comfortable reading that? Of course. So here's Benny. At the same time, other people started floating in on boats from both sides, the east side and the west side. When they saw the land, the boat people poured out of their dirty little boats like hungry tuna, shrimp, and albacore. The ocean is no place to live, they said. It moves around too much. The sky turns so black at night you can't even see it. So they ditched their boats, right out there on the beach. And then they started looking around for land, this land. And that's how it happened. Everybody in the whole world found themselves right here in the middle of Pinche, L.A., hungry, tired, sweaty, and pissed off at everybody. Eventually, somebody said, why can't we all get along? But nobody listened. Thank you. Uh, what do you make of this passage? How does this passage capture how our per- personal relationships to space are saturated with political and linguistic history? Kate, uh, I think you're... Sure. The passage right before that, when Benny sort of starts that speech, also talks about the land migrations um, to California and to L.A. in particular. And he makes the point that even the sort of earliest inhabitants of the region were migrants, like potentially like across the Bering Strait um, through Alaska. And then he also talks about the more recent migrations from Mexico and Central America. And I think what he's sort of saying, right, is like these dynamics of imperialism, settler colonialism, transatlantic slavery as well have really shaped the pathways that people have taken to really any place, but in this case, LA in particular. Um, And I think he wants to say, right, that we are all like sort of you know, from this part of this, right? But we all have very different positionalities within it. And so I think we see in the language of flowers, right, that the characters have very different orientations and they have very different linguistic um, practices as well that reflect these um, histories that they um, that they share with some of the characters, but not with others. So Romeo in that play, for example, or Romeo, he goes by both depending on who is speaking, is an immigrant, an undocumented immigrant from Michoacan. 
Khan, and he's also invested in Nahuatl, the language of the Mexica. And so he really tries to teach the Juliet character, um, you know, the language he says that was spoken in Mexico before it was Mexico. And so I think that's really important. I'd also like to note the end of the passage that, that Katie read uh, references um, uh, some words spoken by Rodney King as well in the aftermath of the LA um, uprisings in the early 90s. And so I think that that a really important moment, right, in LA history also calls attention to the histories of enslavement and really like forced, you know, bonded migration that um, were experienced by um, Black residents of LA, as well as ongoing histories um, and experiences of anti-Black violence. And so the play is really invested in like thinking through all of that and also thinking about the militarized border as well. And that play, um, Romeo is killed crossing back into the United States, for example. So those histories of colonial violence are very palpable in that play. And it was it was being workshopped in L.A. at that time. Right. So it was absorbing the sort of local political environment. Exactly. Yeah. And about that passage, you know, the description of um, the the colonialists pouring out of their dirty little boats like hungry tuna shrimp and albacore, the way in which that kind of punctures the kind of Anglo imperialism or European imperialism and and kind of reduces it to, um, I guess, something more contingent or something uh, less elevated. Yeah, that's a really great point as well, that the sort of primary migrations I think that Benny wants to focus on are indigenous migrations within the region, but then also that, that like sort of, yeah, uh, treatment of of colonial um, migrations as well and the diminishment of that I think is really important. So thank you for pointing that out. Um, The next play in this collection is James Lujan's Aquino and Teresa, also an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, written between 1999 and 2005 when it premiered at the Wells Fargo Theater in Los Angeles. This adaptation sets the story in the 1690s in Santa Fe de Nuevo, Mexico, which would have covered parts of modern-day Mexico and the U.S. states, New Mexico, Arizona, and several others. I'd like to discuss Kino and Teresa, perhaps by starting with the reimagined um, A Plague on Both Our Houses speech given by the Mercutio character, who is named uh, Cristobal in um, James Lujan's play. And uh, Kate, uh, Kate Gillen, I think you're going to read this passage. Sure. So Cristobal begins, what dark humor this is. All my life, caught between the Spanish and Indian I've been, the blood of both flowing through my veins. And then the stage directions say that he can't help but laugh and cry at the cruel irony. And he continues, now here caught between them again, I watch as all the Spanish and Indian blood flows out my veins. I've never known which to truly call myself, Spaniard or Pueblo. Well, I proclaim to call myself neither. I cast you both out of my soul, and I say a curse on both your peoples. And at that point, Cristobal collapses, and Kino, the Romeo figure, and his friend Nicolás rush to his side, and Nicolás checks Cristobal, who is unmoving, and later dies. Can you talk to us about how this passage reimagines 
or expands and deepens the uh, Shakespearean text? Sure. Um, Cristobal is another character whom I've learned a lot about from my students. They're really interested in discussing him and writing about him. And I think what's interesting is that he embodies the realities of colonization as someone who is mixed race, but he also exposes the lies of the racial hierarchies imposed by the Spanish. And one of my students recently noted in a paper that he prefigures the consequences of the re- the union between Kino and Teresa, which is something that's of deep concern to Kino's mother, Anieri, who sees their m- marriage and possible children as an acceleration of cultural genocide, not as a means of peace. Because for her, for their ch- for her their children to have Spanish blood means that they are not Indian. So Cristobal's curse becomes this kind of um, warning in a way to the young couple. Therefore, I think reimagining what Mercutio means when he issues a curse at this moment in Shakespeare's play, which is really a turning point, right? Because before Act Three in Shakespeare's play. This play feels like a comedy, uh, and the the tragic shift um, comes about with with this character. But I think through Cristobal, we're seeing that this tragedy is a much has a deeper history and a much deeper future as well. What about the choice of setting the play in an earlier colonial moment, when Spanish, not English, was the language of colonial cultural hegemony? Kitty Santos, I believe. You were planning on answering this one? So as we know in the introduction, one of the things that's significant about setting Romeo and Juliet in Santa Fe is that Juan de Oñate established the colonial province of Santa Fe in 1598, just one year before Romeo and Juliet was first published in London in 1597. So we're really talking about coterminous histories here. Even though the, that Spanish was the colonial language at that time, and at the time of the Pueblo Revolt and the Spanish Reconquista of the 1680s and 90s that Lujan is dramatizing, he's also prefiguring the ways in which English became a second colonial language in the region. But I think that the rejection of the political quietism at the end of Romeo and Juliet is a really important reminder that it was never inevitable that the U.S. would annex Pueblo lands. It didn't have to be the case that they remained under the control of any any imperial power. And I think that this is really important in our teaching because students often learn in their history classes that colonialism was an inevitable part of the past instead of learning that they can challenge those histories and I think more importantly, imagine decolonial futures. So again, the figure of Anyeri, who's Kino's mother, leaves us, leaves us with an ending that is unresolved and resistantly so. Josh Inocencio's Ophelia was first performed at the Midtown Arts and Theater Center in Houston in 2017 as part of the Truth Project. In this one-act play reimagining the story of Ophelia in Hamlet, Ophelia is a queer Latinx undergraduate who has been sexually assaulted by a white male instructor and visits the campus medical center. What does Inocencio's play show us about Hamlet, the character, and the play? And what does uh, Inocencio's play explore? Uh, How does 
um, Innocencio's play explore the entanglements of colonialism, medical paternalism, and race. And Kate Gillen, I believe you're going to answer this. Sure. This is a really wonderful play and has been really powerful to talk about with students as well. Um, For me, Innocencio's play really helped me see Ophelia in in Shakespeare's play as a victim of sexual violence um, in the sense, not necessarily of assault, but the way Hamlet is always, you know, insulting her, the whole get thee to a nunnery, all of that, as well as the kind of harassment throughout the play scene and and also just the patriarchal violence she faces from her father and her brother. And so I I really think that um, Josh in a sense, he was doing interesting work with rethinking um, Ophelia as a character, and then also thinking about what happens when we place her in a very new context and turn her into a queer Latino. And this really, I think, forces us to think about Hamlet and the whiteness of Hamlet as well. And I think in the, you see Hamlet in the character of the graduate TA who assaults Ophelia. And I think a lot about Ian Smith's argument about Hamlet that critics often identify with with Hamlet, but what goes unspoken in that identification is the whiteness of both Hamlet and of the critic that he's talking about, the sort of dominantly white critic. And so um, I think we really see that in Ophelio. Um, We see the whiteness, not only of the character of Hamlet, but also that graduate assistant, and then the medical kind of industrial complex and the whole like academic industrial complex, that these are all like white and hostile spaces for Ophelio, who doesn't really get the care that he needs and deserves, you know, in them. And so I think that's a really um, powerful um, reading of Hamlet and also really points to the ways in which, um, you know, medical racism and institutional racism within the academy can affect people. Um, to me, something that's really exciting about that play is that it really speaks to that activist roots of a lot of borderland Shakespeare and uh, Mexican-American theater more generally, which kind of has its roots in the Teatro Campesino, which formed, um, you know, as part of the farm workers movement. Um, it was started by um, Luis Valdez on the picket lines of the Delano grape strike. And so it really was this theater that was performed on flatbed trucks and union halls. It was really doing like agitating work, consciousness raising work and, and critiquing these social power structures. And so So to me, by calling attention to questions of sexuality and race in um, this context and performing it at a festival that was designed to raise awareness about sexual assault in queer communities, I think in Asensio's play really taps into that, but also shows, as many of the plays in the anthology do, how um, teatro has evolved to address current social issues. Could I add something else about Hamlet? Um, I think we have we have seen in our research and certainly in the other Hamlet play in this anthology, which is Tara Moses's Hamlet, El Principe de Denmark, um, that Hamlet has, despite the whiteness with which he is associated, become a really interesting figure for the borderlands and the kinds of dilemmas and introspective questions that that Hamlet is asking lend themselves quite well to the expressions of selfhood that a border subject um, wants to to make and explore. Um, And I think another thing to point out about Moses's play um, is that it was 
uh, created for Tela Tulsa, which is a Latinx and indigenous theater company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for the occasion of their Dia de los Muertos celebration. And before the audience came to the theater, they had the opportunity to spend time with the altars that had been built. Um, and so this is another example of community-based theater rooted um, in these kinds of practices and tradition. Um, so that's something else that I wanted to highlight about what Hamlet is doing in our anthology. I'd also like to to circle back because um, Kate, you mentioned, uh, you, you referred to uh, Innocencio as Josh and uh, Katie, you, you referred to Moses by first name. You, you know, the authors of the anthology and the, um, the audience for these plays might also encounter the playwright. How is editing these plays um, challenging, enriching, or working with living authors? Do you want to start, Katie? Well, it's such a gift, really, to be working with living authors, um, particularly as people who are trained as early modernists and, and working on long, um, distant uh, authors for most of our graduate careers. And so having the opportunity to be able to ask questions and to interview them is truly wonderful. Um, but it also gives us an opportunity to edit in ways that honor their intentions and honor their language practices. And um, we as scholars do not want to intervene in ways that would disrupt any of those intentions. Um, so it's really a collaborative relationship. And we see this anthology as serving them and giving them a platform so that their work, which has not been published, um, can be available to other scholars, to teachers, to students and readers and, and performers. Yeah, and the playwrights are really amazing artists and who are doing all kinds of things. Like some of it's related to Shakespeare, but most of it's not. So we're just really hoping that people who read the anthology who might not be um, familiar with those <clears throat> traditions can really kind of go explore more of their work as well. Absolutely. Um, I always like talking to writers about their process and their relationship to writing. Um, what was your experience uh, of collaborating on this kind of ambitious, large-scale project? What are your approaches to writing scholarship? Yeah, well, we spend a lot of time on Zoom together <laughs> and a lot of time texting each other and e emailing and all of that. So um, we definitely spend a lot of time together and have developed a good working relationship. Um, we're really grateful to be working with Adriana Santos, who, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is an expert in um, Chicana, Chicanx uh, literary traditions. So we've learned a lot from that interdisciplinary collaboration as well. I think Katie and I have both learned a lot about borderland studies and Chicanx and indigenous studies um, through this. And we've really relied on her um, for her expertise as well. Um, but I think it's also been really important, just as Katie mentioned, that we spend a lot of time, you know, working together, editing the plays and talking through these ethical issues that arise as we seek to best, you know, represent the intentions of the authors and to be accountable to the communities from which these plays arise. I would add, um, just to echo Kate's 
comments about the collaborative nature of this work, um, I have discovered through this project and, and other collaborations that I've done, but, but especially this project, that I thrive in a collaborative environment. And I think as humanists, we are often told that what our field valorizes and values is a single authored project. Um, but I do my best thinking in, in conversation with other people. So whether I'm co-writing something or just seeking feedback on something that I've written, um, I know that my ideas become stronger when I'm talking to other people. Um, and I think just a kind of funny side note, the three of us live in San Antonio, but we have just found it much easier in many cases to be on Zoom. Um, and then when we do get together, we get together to go to the theater um, or to have experiences that enrich our writing practices and support local art in our community. So we see our collaboration as sort of directly working on scholarly things, but also kind of being out in our community together. I would add as well that one of our goals is to build the Borderland Shakespeare Colectiva. And so that work really is collaborative. So we've been really lucky to collaborate with other scholars in our various fields, as well as with community artists. Um, a local artist who's actually from the Rio Grande Valley, Celeste de Luna, um, created the art, the um, print that's on the cover of our anthology. So we're really hoping to continue to bring people into this project and to keep learning from them. Oh, yeah. Thank you for, for drawing our attention to the cover. It's an amazing cover. Um, great, great design. Um, the, the book is published by um, the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. And the, the quality, the care of the, the um, packaging is, is great. Um, and I just want to echo a couple of things you said, which one is this project is kind of speaking back against that idea of the um, single author, autonomous author sort of standing up and propounding um, their, their arguments about text, the, the value of collaborative work is so important. And the other thing is like, I, I feel our training is really, um, is really grounded in this idea that we're having a scholarly debate um, separated from the context, like the, the local context that we're working in. You know, I'm in, in Boston right now. Y'all are in San Antonio. I think most graduate programs, they don't um, sort of put the work in the university in conversation with what's going on outside of the, the gates of the university. So those are really important. Can I ask just a, a simple material question because I'm fascinated by collaborative work. Um, when you're writing the introduction, do you um, have like a, a Google doc that you're all writing in or do you, one of you take the, the first draft and then somebody else goes through the second draft? How do you just kind of do it in a practical way? We have a lot of Google Docs. <laughs> yes. Um, no, for the general introduction, we really did write that fully collaboratively <laughs> last summer. So we were all in the Google Doc, sort of moving things around. Um, we do sometimes have somebody write a section of something and then we go back and revise or often with the play introductions, maybe somebody's already written about it in an article. And so we can kind of use what they've written as a basis for a draft or somebody will just go ahead and, you know, do some close analysis or some background research to kind of get us started. So I do think sometimes we're writing... Um, you know, individually, but I do think we might write collaboratively more than many collaborators do. We spend a lot of time together in the documents. Right. 
And I suppose communication must be really important of just saying, you know, I'm working on this other project for the next couple months. I'm going to have to um, withdraw for a little while and that sort of thing. Right. Well, and we find that actually having structured time together allows us to do that, right? So that we can say, okay, these are the hours that we're spending together this week on this project so that we can dedicate other hours to our own books or to our own you know, teaching responsibilities. It, it helps to kind of stay accountable to each other, but also to kind of contain the work. Yeah. And you do definitely get to know each other very well and sort of open about, you know, all the idiosyncrasies of our writing and, you know, that sort of collaborative editing is super helpful. Yeah. And lots of pets and kids and spouses, you know, kind of come in and out of the rooms. It's, it's a family affair. <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. And now I'm thinking about how to how to approach my own teaching in a way that honors um, it sort of. Um, Katie, as you were saying, um, the the value of scholars who like thinking with others or prefer, you know, thinking with others. That's great. Um, I, I believe the Bard in the Borderlands is going to be field changing, but I'm sure it carried some sense of professional or intellectual risk. I know there is general resistance to supporting and recognizing editorial work in our discipline. And then there is specific resistance to scholarly work that critically engages colonialism and race. What would you tell an early career scholar who feels moved to continue and contribute to this work? Thanks for that question. I, I do think that we are constantly having to negotiate beliefs or realities of what our field values, what our field claims to value, even as the profession has changed, is changing. So the way that I've come to think about it as someone who's done early modern scholar, scholarly editing and this more modern scholarly editing is to think about not just what our field claims to value, but what is actually valuable to the field and to challenge the field's value systems, right? We don't have to think about value just in terms of what academics think or what early modern studies thinks, because this project uh, gave us this opportunity to really expand the sense of how we can create something that is valuable to a wide range of people in Shakespeare studies, in Mexican-American studies, indigenous studies, performance studies, right? This is truly interdisciplinary. To answer your second question about um, work that engages colonialism and race, I think that the advice I would give um, would vary depending on who the scholar is. So the advice that I can give as a white scholar um, who is not from the borderlands um, is to think about how you can use your skill sets, your time, your institutional resources and platform to highlight those who have been marginalized without centering yourself in the process. So we see this project as doing exactly that type of work. Um, by editing these plays and giving them a scholarly framework, we are offering our skills and our knowledge um, and our institutional resources, as well as those of ACMRS, um, in order to build this new field and open up new forms of scholarship. So maybe this anthology will enable the next monograph on Shakespeare in the Borderlands um, or the next article on these topics. And I consider that to be not only my own work of scholarship, but an act of service to the field. I, 
I would add as well that we're really indebted to the work of a whole generation of Shakespeare and race scholars, I think, as I'm thinking, especially of Black scholars in the field, like Kim F. Hall and Margot Hendricks and Arthur Little and Ian Smith, who have really... Um, pushed the field to consider these questions, opened up space for other scholars, including white scholars like ourselves, um, to do this kind of work. And so I, I do think there's support, you know, for people who want to do this kind of work, there is support. There are networks that can help, um, you know, kind of shepherd this work and support people in their kind of, you know, professional careers. Um, I would also just as a piece of advice say that I think it is important sometimes to make this kind of public facing work legible. And sometimes that does mean publishing about it in more traditional contexts. So that's something we've tried to do as well. I mean, we write about the plays, we publish articles in journals and collections on them. And we're doing similar things with our work on, you know, thinking about community accountable editing or thinking about our work with local theaters or our pedagogical work. So I do think it's important um, both to make the argument, right, that this work is important in its own right, while also kind of for especially early career scholars or scholars who are in vulnerable positions um, for various reasons to make sure that they're also kind of making sure that people don't take advantage of that work or don't erase or overlook that work. Um, one other, a couple other things that I want to add in response to this question um, is that um, one of the beauties of ACMRS's open access model is that we're able to get data in a way that I, I don't think we usually can. I guess we can get book sales or article views, but I checked with Jeff Way, who's the manager of the press yesterday, um, and he shared that since the book was published in early or mid-March, there have been 646 unique visitors to the press book site and over 2,100 views. So that's remarkable. And I think a testament to the, again, the value of editing and, and thinking about what this will enable in terms of teaching, um, I, I think is really, really powerful. And, and related to ACMRS, I also just want to um, kind of give a shout out to Ruben Espinosa and his amazing work on Shakespeare and the Border um, and the kind of work that he has enabled in our field um, is clearly reflected in this kind of work. So we're, we're really, as Kate said, kind of standing on the shoulders of, of Shake Race scholars, but hopefully kind of contributing to that shared mission of making it possible and um, central to talk about race and colonialism in our field, particularly in a state like Texas, where these things are under threat. Um, we talk about in our anthology that we are indebted to the work of the Libro Traficantes, who smuggled books back into Arizona when books were banned. Um, in the 2010s, uh, and included on that list of books was The Tempest, as, as Ruben discusses in his work. Um, and so we see these plays as an opportunity to bring Mexican-American history, indigenous history into classrooms through Shakespeare. And I'll just uh, add to that, that if there are people out there listening, especially early career folks who want to talk through any of these issues, you're more than welcome to um, contact us. We're happy to support. We really do want to support that kind of work. Yes. And let me also underline uh, that this is 
open access. So anyone, um, whether you have an institutional affiliation in academia, not in academia, um, it's completely free and available online. So um, please avail yourself of this wonderful collection, listeners. Um, This is the first volume of a larger series. Can I ask what the plan is for volumes two and three? Uh, What do we have to look forward to in the next several volumes? Sure. We are hard at work on volumes two and three, and we're very excited about the plays that are included in them. The plays in volume one were primarily appropriations of Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. And we have a kind of wider range of Shakespeare plays that are engaged with in the subsequent volumes. We have so many great plays there. I wish we had time to talk about them all, but a couple just to give you a little, you know, foreshadowing of what is to come. A couple that we're very excited about are Herbert Siguenza's play El Henry, which is a Chicano adaptation of Henry IV Part One, set in post-apocalyptic San Diego. Uh, we're also excited about Jose Cruz Gonzalez's play Invierno, which is a adaptation of The Winter's Tale, which um, engages uh, in particular with the colonial and indigenous histories of the central coast of California and thinks about the effects of colonialism on the Shumash, Shumash peoples of the central coast in particular. And then we're also excited about a play called La Comedia of Errors by um, Lydia Garcia and Bill Rausch. And that play is a by bilingual comedy of errors, which is set in border spaces and um, attends to questions of family separation and, again, sort of the the violence and the interpersonal violence that can be caused by the militarized border. So we have a whole range of um, a range of works. We're really um, looking forward to continuing to edit them and making them available open access as well. It sounds wonderful. Yeah, I can see how comedy of errors would really lend itself to, to that those themes. And I'm thinking um, Henry Four in post-apocalyptic San Diego. You said it's a wild like, play. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Like, please, please come back on and <laughs> yeah, and volume volumes well, two and three. What great. I what I love about the concept of that play is that he's using the genre of the history play to create a future play. Yeah which I think is is what these Borderlands adaptations are all about. How do we take something from the past to highlight histories that have been obscured, um, but to imagine these possible futures that are decolonial? That's, that's wonderful. Um, now that this is out in the world, what are you turning your attention to? Do you have uh, projects or activities within academia or outside of it that you are excited to devote your time to? Well, I'm not sure about outside academia, though um, we do like to go to the theater and call that uh, a hobby. Um, but Beyond the anthology, working on volumes two and three, we are really excited about some of the activities that we're going to be engaging in um, with the help of grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities and from the Mellon Foundation. So in 2024, March 7th through 9th, you're all invited. We're going to be hosting a conference here in San Antonio uh, about um, adapting, translating, and performing Shakespeare in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. And we're really hoping that this conference will bring together scholars, teachers, artists, um, students, community members who want to engage in conversations um, and collaborate 
further on this tradition. And in addition to having traditional presentations, uh, we're hoping that we'll have conversations among the playwrights that we can begin to contribute to an archive of oral histories. We're hoping to have musical performances because many of these plays feature corridos or Mexican ballads. And we're hoping that we'll be able to commission the local um, Latinx theater company named Teatro Aldaz um, to perform one of these plays. So that's a collaboration that we're currently engaged in and looking forward to. The larger purpose of the Borderland Shakespeare Colectiva is to change the way that Shakespeare is taught and performed. So in addition to that work with theaters, which we think is really central and important, we are also working on compiling and creating pedagogical materials that people will be able to use in college and university classrooms, as well as potentially in high schools, um, to really think about that kind of culturally sustaining and decolonial pedagogy that we were talking about, you know, earlier in our conversation, um, because our work really arises um, from conversations with our students, from our experiences teaching in San Antonio, often in um, classrooms with predominantly Mexican-American students. And it's just so important and for students to see um, literature that really reflects their lived experiences and also like empowers them in various ways to engage with canonical works of literature as well as with other kind of cultural forms that they see around them um, in daily life. So we're really excited to work on those pedagogical and performance aspects of the project as well. Well, thank you so much for this anthology, and thank you for this um, wonderfully illuminating uh, conversation. Um, thank you, John, for the invitation and for your fantastic questions. Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you both.